0: You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole, St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. Let's continue in our time of worship by opening God's Word together. So if you have your Bible or your Bible app, will you take that and go with me to Ephesians chapter 1? Ephesians chapter one and if you don't own a Bible we'd love to give you one there are stacks of Bibles on the tables in the back of the room you can take one now or on your way out of worship today that's our gift to you and if you don't know your way around the Bible the verses that we're gonna study today will be on the screen so you can follow along with us here if you're willing and able will you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for his people so listen carefully to these words that come from God Recorded long ago by the Apostle Paul, Ephesians 1 15 to 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. We've just begun a new series called Who Am I? It's a study of the book of Ephesians. In the 21st century West, personal identity is a topic that is omnipresent and all-pervasive. For many people, personal identity is a DIY project, right? They, they think that they can just sort of design themselves. And maybe you're tempted to think that way, that your identity is a DIY project. You are who you feel yourself to be on the inside. There's this core of feeling and intuition, and to be the real you, to find your true self, you've got to act on whatever that is that you feel deep within you. But what we're learning in this series is that we are not DIY beings. We are not DIY projects. This identity angst of our age, your identity angst, it will find rest only in one place, and that is in the presence of God. The God who made you. The God who can say with absolute authority, this is who you are. Identity angst will find rest only in the presence and declaration of God. So we've been studying the book of Ephesians, just getting into it. And really this is a a letter... About identity formation. Over and over in this letter, the Apostle Paul, the writer, is going to use this phrase, in Christ, to summarize our new and true identity. This is who we are as believers. We exist in Christ. And we'll unpack everything that that means as the letter unfolds. I want to tee up our text. For today, Ephesians 1, verses 15 to 23, by introducing you to a very important figure from Christian history. His name is John Calvin. You might be familiar with him. Calvin was a French reformer, he lived from 1509 to 1564, and he wrote what is one of the most important theological works from history. It's called The Institutes of the Christian Religion, or The Institutes for short. Now, Calvin, like I said, was a French reformer. Like all good reformers, he had an impressive beard. And he devoted his beard and his life to the writing and the preaching and the teaching of solid theology. And the Institutes is one of the great examples of that. Now, maybe you have heard of John Calvin through this term Calvinism. And Calvinism, you've heard me say this before, Calvinism might as well be cannibalism. Many people hear it and they just think, ooh, ooh, I don't like that. And that's because of all these misconceptions and caricatures. So let's set the record straight this morning. Calvinism is simply biblical Christianity. It's just a synonym for biblical Christianity. We are Calvinists at Faith Church because we believe in the Bible. Calvin himself never wanted his followers, the followers of his teaching to name themselves after him. He wasn't interested in that. Calvin didn't want anybody to know his name. He even insisted on being buried in an unmarked grave. All he did was devote his life to teaching and preaching the Bible and the Institutes of the Christian Religion. That book that he wrote is a great example. Now here's why I bring all this up. In Book 1, Chapter 1 of the Institutes, Calvin makes this point. He argues that knowledge of self and knowledge of God are inseparably linked. Knowledge of self and knowledge of God are inseparably linked. Here's the way he puts it. Look at this quote from John Calvin, French reformer, bearded wonder. Man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face and then descends from contemplating Him to scrutinize Himself. Now, this is the path we're going to travel today and next week. Today, in Ephesians 1, 15-23, we are going to look upon God's face. And then next week, in Ephesians 2, 1-10, to 10, we're going to descend from contemplating Him to scrutinize ourselves. You see, knowledge of self and knowledge of God, they're inseparably linked. Last week, the passage we studied, it was an inscription of praise. Paul opens this letter by praising God for who He is and the great blessings that He has bestowed upon believers. Today, in the second half of chapter 1, Paul is going to make that same shift we just made a few moments ago in our worship gathering. We shifted from praise to prayer. And that's exactly what Paul does in chapter 1 of Ephesians. This passage is a prayer for believers to have a deeper knowledge of God, a greater awareness of God's blessings. And Paul is going to pray for us believers to know three things in particular. He wants us to know the hope to which God calls us, the value God gives us, and the power He wields for us. So the hope to which God calls us the value he gives us, and the power he wields for us. That third point is the most important. Paul devotes several verses to unpacking it, but let's begin with hope. The hope to which God calls us. Picking up here in verses 15 and 16, Paul writes, "...for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints... I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Now, bear in mind that Paul, as he is writing these words, he is in prison. He's chained to a Roman guard. And yet, what is he doing? He's giving thanks. He's giving thanks. He even says, I do not cease to give thanks for you. In other words, I never quit giving thanks. Even as I'm sitting here chained to this guard, I never quit giving thanks. Have you quit giving thanks? Has your life become so busy and you're so consumed by your life that you've quit giving thanks to the very God who gave you life? Or have you become so self-obsessed that you've quit giving thanks for others. It's interesting here that Paul's thanksgiving is not a self centered thanksgiving, it's a kingdom centered thanksgiving. He doesn't give thanks for the believers in Ephesus. He's not giving thanks for some gift that they've sent him, that is. It's not like you're saying, hey guys, thanks for that cake you baked for me really came in handy as I sit here in prison. Next time, hide a hacksaw in there so I can get my way out of here. That's not what's happening here. He's thanking God for what God is doing in these believers' lives. It's a kingdom-centered thanksgiving. Paul is simply saying, God, I, I give thanks to you for the faith and the love that I see in these people in Ephesus. Do we pray this way? Do we pray giving thanks to God for how He is growing the faith and the love of fellow believers, people here in our own congregation, people in your connection group, in our student ministry, in our children's ministry? This is a kingdom-centered thanksgiving. Now, He continues to pray. He shifts also from thanksgiving to intercession He's remembering the Ephesian believers in his prayers. And then he prays in verse 17 that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you, believers, the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. So Paul is praying for them to receive the Spirit. Hang on, that, that should strike us as weird. Because last week, in that opening chunk of the letter, we learned that all believers are marked by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit marks us as the people of God and actually lives, dwells within us. The Holy Spirit has made a home in your heart, believer. So why would Paul pray here, just a few verses later, that God would give the Spirit? What's that all about? I think here he's referring not to the Spirit, the person, but the Spirit's ministry. See, here's the way it works. If you're a believer, you do indeed have the Holy Spirit of God living within you at all times. But you and I, we can be more and less receptive, sensitive to the Spirit's leading. We can be more and less submissive to the Spirit's ministry. And that's what Paul is praying for here, that we would be led by the Spirit sensitive to the Spirit who lives, who dwells within us. So here's how that works. When you wake up in the morning and you see your Bible sitting there on your bedside table or your kitchen table or wherever it is, and there's something inside you, you can sense it saying, pick up that Bible and read it. When that happens, that's not something inside you, that's someone. That's the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. And what is He doing in that moment? He is showing Himself to be the Spirit of wisdom and of revelation. He's leading you to the place where you will indeed find wisdom and revelation, God's Word. And if you will go to that Word and you will pick it up and read it, the Spirit will work. He will illuminate the Scriptures, He will impress the truth on your heart. One of the things I've tried to teach my boys is what I call reading with claws. Reading with claws, by which I mean when we read a book, we need to reach out and grab those words and take them in and remember them. And believer, when you pick up God's word and you read it, the spirit who lives within you will grab those words and he will carry them deep down in your heart where he himself dwells. You see, this is how holy revelation becomes heartfelt conviction. This is how it works. The spirit of God within you is the spirit of wisdom and of revelation. Paul wants us to see that and experience that. And then here at the end of verse 17, he references for the first time in the letter knowledge or knowing God. Really, this entire passage that we're studying today is about this one theme, knowing God, coming to a deeper knowledge of God, a greater awareness of His blessings. What does it mean to know God? Not know about Him, but know Him personally. J.I. Packer has a classic book on this very subject. Here's what Packer says. He says that knowing God is a much more complicated sort of business than knowing another person. Just like knowing another person, my neighbor, for example, is a much more complicated business than knowing an animal. You follow me? The more complicated or complex the object, the more complex is the knowing of it. To know a living thing is to know something about that thing's history. And not only that, but something about how that thing will react or respond in the present. So think of it this way. We have some people in our congregation who ride horses. If you said, I know that horse, I know that horse, what would you mean? Certainly you would mean more than I know the horse's name. You would probably mean something like this. I have been around that horse. I know how that horse responds. I know how it ought to be handled. And I can tell you. So you see knowing an animal now that's it's complicated but that's one thing. Over here on the other hand, knowing a human, well that's even more complicated because here's the thing. Humans, unlike horses, humans have secrets. Humans have secrets. We don't always open up to other people, do we? We don't always tell everyone everything that's on our heart. And here Packer makes the point, and I think he's exactly right. Knowing another person has much more to do with them than it does with us. That person has to be willing to open up to us, become known This is why we have people in our lives that if we're honest we have to say you know what I have been in the company of him or her for years but I don't really know him. I don't really know her. So now hold that thought what we just learned and hang with me for one more minute. Now I want you to imagine a scenario. Imagine a scenario where you have been invited to meet someone who you consider to be far above you in some way. Maybe they're higher in rank. Maybe it's They have more experience in your field, more education, more spiritual maturity, whatever. You consider them to be far above you. It's someone to whom you look up. This is an impressive person. And you've been invited to meet him or her. Now, when we meet someone impressive like that, we know that our place in that meeting is just to sit and respect, right? We sit, we smile, we listen if we're going to get to know this exalted person it's not up to us it's up to him or her they must open up it's the only hope this is an illustration of what it means to know God the most impressive being person that you can ever imagine to know God is to have been invited into his presence and there where our rightful place is just to sit and respect, God has opened up. He has showed us exactly what's on His heart. He has invited us to be partners in His plan for the world. That's incredible. If our lives were uneventful before, not anymore. God has invited us to be His covenant partners. We know Him. We know Him. And in this passage, Paul wants us to get an even deeper knowledge of this God. So now he goes on to pray for these three things in particular. These are very clear to see in the passage. I want you to see them for yourself. Each of them begins with the word what. Paul's continuing in this prayer, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. I'm praying, believers, that you may know, the first thing, what is the hope to which God has called us? You want a deeper knowledge of God? Start by dwelling on this the hope to which he has called you believer God has chosen you before the foundation of the world we learned that in the passage last week he has adopted you he has adopted you that's how much he loves you and he has called you to this hope now what do we mean by hope well in the bible hope is something far more than this idea of like a disney hope It's far more than this Jiminy Cricket sort of wish upon a star thing. In the Bible, hope is a firm conviction. A certainty, despite all appearances to the contrary, a certainty that God is at work right now restoring His broken creation and that one day He will complete His perfect plan see when you have this hope when you can fix your eyes on that future day that promise that God will certainly complete his plan when you can fix your eyes on that you will be able to endure whatever your present trials might be whatever your affliction because you have this hope that's the first thing Paul prays for believers know the hope to which God calls us. Secondly, still here in verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, I'm praying, believers, that you may may know what is the hope to which He has called you and what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. Now this word inheritance, Paul used it earlier, the passage we studied last week, back around verse 14 or so. And there, he used the word in a different way. In this passage, he's talking about an inheritance, but something interesting has shifted here. Before, it was our inheritance. Believers, our inheritance. And it was in the context of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is given to us, marking us as God's people, His property. And the Spirit is given to us as a first installment or down payment of all the future blessings and inheritance that's coming to us. So the context was our inheritance, all the blessings that we have coming. But here, in verse 18, it's not our inheritance. It's God's inheritance. Now that's a striking thought, because God is the creator of all things. He owns all things. How can He possibly have an inheritance? And what could this inheritance be? Well, Paul tells us, it's the saints. That's us. Believers, Paul wants us to understand how deeply God loves and values us. We are considered to be His inheritance, His treasure. As earthly kings value gold and silver, so God values you and me. So pick and plug in your favorite treasure hunting story here. The Goonies, National Treasure, whatever. And think about how the characters in that story chase the treasure. And they cherish it. And finally, they claim it as their own. Believer, you are that treasure. You are God's treasure. That's how much he values you. Now, a deep and abiding understanding of this, of this second truth here, this will keep us from two things. It will keep us from self doubt, and it will keep us from self conceit. Let me show you how. It'll keep us from self doubt because when you remember this, you will remember that you are valuable. You will remember where you are. You are in God's treasury. That's your status. Just like an earthly king loves his diamonds, his gold, God loves you. So it will keep you from self-doubt. You are valuable. But it will also keep you from self-conceit. Because you will realize that you did not climb or claw your way into this treasury. God placed you there. Before the foundation of the world, He chose you. He purchased you with the blood of his own son. Yes, you are valuable. Yes, you have status. But it is not an achieved status, it is a received status. It is by God's sovereign grace that you and I are in this treasury. So you see, it keeps us from both self doubt and self conceit. Believer, no. Know the value He gives you. And one final thing that Paul wants us to, to learn. He wants us to learn about the power that God wields for us. You've got to see this because this really is the primary point of the passage. We know that because Paul spends so much time unpacking it here at the end of the chapter. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, believers, I'm still praying. I'm praying that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? And finally, what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might? Paul is fully convinced that God is powerful. And so he piles up, he accumulates words and phrases here to convince us of God's power. He talks about the immeasurable greatness of His power. The working of his great might. Now, let me ask you a question. How do you know, how do you really know if someone is mighty, if someone is strong? Well, there has to be a test of strength, right? What can you lift? What can you carry? What can you conquer? Has God's strength been tested? Oh, indeed it has. Indeed it has. In the final verses of the chapter, Paul gives us three demonstrations of God's strength. This is how we know how powerful He is. And the first thing he draws attention to here is the resurrection of the Son. How do we know God is powerful? God worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. So what can you lift? What can you carry? What can you conquer? How about death? How about death? God conquered Death, he lifted Jesus, the Son, from the grave. And he will do the same for all of us who are in Christ. All of us who look to Jesus Christ with faith. This is how we know how powerful he is. But there's more. There's more. We know that he is powerful because he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, the resurrection. There's the first example. Here's the second one. And seated him... At his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. After God the Father raised Jesus the Son from the grave, Jesus ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of God the Father, the seat of power, the seat of honor. He is enthroned over all evil. He reigns over every spiritual force, every evil power, every conceivable being. But it's not just that he reigns. You've got to see this. This is my favorite part of the whole passage. Look at the next verse. Verse 22. And God put all things under his, Jesus, under his feet. <sighs> Do you see what this is about? Let me help you. Here's a picture. First couple of weeks back to school, right? So, teachers, students, parents, I'll use you as the illustration this morning, okay, to help us all get this picture clear in our minds. Friday rolls around. It's been a long week in the classroom. Amen? Long week in the classroom, teachers. So Friday night rolls around. What do you do? You sit, kick back, maybe prop up the feet on the coffee table. In our house, we don't have a coffee table, but we have this hidden like portion of our couch that we can roll out, and it converts into an ottoman. We call it mega couch. You like that? Friday nights are for mega couch. Why? Because we've conquered the week. Made it through, right? So now we, sit, we just kick back, prop up the feet, and relax. Here's what Paul is teaching us in this passage. Every spiritual force, every evil power, you know what that is? That is Jesus' mega couch. He's just propping up his feet. They are his footstool. That's Dominance. That's power. And there's more. Look at the last verse. He put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. So here's the third demonstration of power. Resurrection, enthronement over evil, and now headship of the church. So this same Jesus, enthroned over all things, propping up his feet... On anything that frightens us, he's also our head, meaning he's our leader. We serve him. We are with him. So put all that together. Jesus is victorious over all. And believers, we are with Jesus. He's our head. That means that his victory is our victory. It's our victory. So whatever it is that frightens you, whatever it is that frightens you, the direction of the world, the economy, your own mortality, whatever it is that has its grip on you right now, sexual sin, Pornography. Some of you know it's true. You don't even want to make eye contact with me. Violent temper. Whatever it is that has its grip on you, you do not have to let it rain. You do not have to let it rain over you because Jesus is victorious. Whatever that is that's frightening you, It has its grip on you. That is Jesus' mega couch. His footstool. He is victorious. And believer, you are with Him. His power is available to you. So don't let it rain. Put it where it belongs. By the power of God within you. We'll stop there for the day. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this power that you have demonstrated in so, so many ways. The resurrection of your Son who died in our place for our sins. His enthronement over all things. Oh, what dominance, what power. We realize that risen and exalted Jesus is the head of the church. He is our leader. We follow him. We are with him. His power is available to us. And so we pray right now for that power to be real in our hearts and lives. There are countless struggles amongst us. Some of us are afraid afraid of what lies ahead some of us are entangled in sin we know it we've been thinking of ourselves as a victim help us to see that because of you Jesus we are a victor let not sin reign Let not sin reign. In the all-powerful name of Jesus, we pray.